I was looking at the artwork, which was very beautiful. Uh, but I, I just I was I was clearly an idiot luddite with my priorities out of place. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see artwork on your phone, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by creating snazzy intros. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how was your week? Uh, it's, been, it's been a week. It's been quite a week. I, I must say, though, that it, uh, nothing that happened during the week was nearly as exciting as this moment that I now, now have had imagining what our snazzy intro will be. I, I know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. We already had it. That was the snazzy intro. Oh, okay. Yeah. The intro, the intro is the part every week where I, uh, come up with some new thing to say that we're doing to solve cultural divisions. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I suppose, yeah, the snazzy intro is, is learning to love what you have right in front of you this whole time. That's certainly the attitude I hope everyone takes when they see our podcast pop up on their feed. (laughs) This is another opportunity to better myself through exercising the virtue of patience. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. But uh, we, you know, crazy intros aside, we um, had a very busy week in terms of news this week and none of it really lends itself to a single clear theme because it was really all over the place and it was really all very important um as david was reminding me just before we even began we were going over some of the news um you know it it's uh, it took it got relatively little of the news coverage but the conflict between india and pakistan probably was the biggest thing that happened this week although that's seems already to be on the downside um getting diffused a little bit but yeah that's one of those things where it does pop up on american news sources but it's not um it's not treated with the gravity that it really should be yeah well a lot of the i mean a lot of the issues that happened this week are also the kinds of things that it's impossible to know as they're happening what the ultimate significance of them will be. And, you know, it's like getting a telegram, Austrian, you know, member of the Austrian royal family assassinated by anarchists in, uh, you know, some random part of the Balkans, right? Like who, who actually knew anything about the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1908? And the way that that played into imperial politics and the balance of power between the great powers, you know, when, in in 1914. Like, so what what hope would would most Americans have had of understanding what the significance of that action was, even if they heard of it? Similarly, um, yeah, the Puwama uh, attack that killed you know several dozen you know 40 Indian troops that has now you know triggered into the uh, or not triggered but you know snowballed into uh, exchange of fire you know this air air attack by india which you know may or may not have actually killed any people or damaged any infrastructure they might have just dropped bombs in a, in a forest that's another thing that hasn't been established but you know, led to a pakistani retaliation 
that brought down this this jet and ended up with uh, an Indian pilot uh, held captive. And at that point, you know, as you said, now thankfully the captive the pilot has been returned to India, and we appear to be in the process of de-escalating. But um, you know, but who who can who can know you know right now what this particular flashpoint will result in? And when you have tactical nuclear weapons and hundreds of thousands of troops you know, arrayed on that border um, and a, a changing security environment uh, leading to the predictions that the two sides have of how the other will act in response to any particular uh, conflict or provocation being reassessed, you know, that there's, there's no clear doctrine now anymore. Uh, there's just a huge, there, there's a huge amount of possibility and a huge amount of threat, but also, again, now it appears like the American who just didn't pay any attention and just ignored it because they were, I don't know, following like the Bryce Harper uh, contract or whatever, um, you know, or the Cohen testimony or whatever else they were following, like may end up having been proved right to have ignored what was going on in South Asia because it might not go anywhere. You know, it, it, it's impossible to know in advance, even though, you know, even though future historians may trace it all back to this moment. You know what I'm saying? And the same, and the same holds for uh, the Cohen testimony itself, given the lines of investigation that might be opened uh, as a result of some of the things that Cohen put on the record. Uh, and therefore that might lead to subpoenas uh, from the house. And the same might be true of, I mean, you, know, you, you brought this up a minute ago before we started recording. Um, uh, the fact that, you know, Israeli prime minister Netanyahu has gotten indicted itself might be the beginning of, of the end of a, of a long era of conservative political dominance in Israel. So, you know, all sorts of things might, uh, might be sort of epoch defining moments, uh, or they might end up not going anywhere, but here we are trying to make sense of it all. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, and, and I'm thinking to your example, of course, about you get the telegram that says Austrian Archduke assassinated and you know, that is, as you said, that individual moment might not strike you as the one that finally causes the big war, even though it was something that people had had their eyes on for decades. I mean, Otto von Bismarck, you know, supposedly was asked what would start the next big European war. And he said something like some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. And, uh, you know, that ended up being true. So that, that I, you know, just like with India and Pakistan, we've been aware of this as a major possible flashpoint for but has it been two decades since they both developed nuclear weapons? Right. And, you know, who knows what's finally going to spark a conflict or who even knows what could be the genesis of them de-escalating their conflict, their overall conflict. Right. Or, I mean, you know, 
we don't have a like table of contents that we use to map out our all of our conversations, but you know, simultaneous to the Cohen testimony was the um, you know the uh, summit, quote unquote summit in Vietnam over North Korea, and that too strikes me as having the potential to pretty seriously, I mean, I, I don't want to go, I don't get, want to, don't want to get over my skis as it were, but, um, you know, how many times are the South Koreans going to let themselves get burned you know, by this president? It's, it's very dangerous for them. I mean, we look at this and we see, depending on your view of America and the world and your sort of personal attachment to American international prestige, you know, you have a different take on things, but, um, you know, but for, for South Korea, this is really life or death stuff and hot on the heels of, of the collapse of the talks, uh, which, you know, I got a news alert from the Washington post that said talks unexpectedly collapse. <laughs> it's like yes. unexpected by whom? You know? Who was expecting this to go anywhere, uh, other than committed partisan hacks, uh, you know, and, and boosters preparing to go to CPAC, um, you know? But for the but for the South Koreans, so they're watching that happen. Then I got the news that. Uh, U.S. South Korean war games were canceled again. You know, and this is something that um, you know, I didn't. I didn't read the specifics, but I remember several stories over the past couple of years about the U.S. pulling out of, or threatening to cancel, or altering the scope of war games held with the um, Army of the Republic of Korea, and. You know, this is this is serious stuff for Korea, and we talked about this before. You know, I have a I have a pretty I don't know I have a soft spot in my heart for for Korea, in part because I think it's one of the clear examples of the serious. Yeah, it's one of the one of the challenges or um, it's one of the cases that people on the left who, who seem to default towards criticizing America's role in the world would need to answer, you know, without America, who does, who plays this role? And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to imply this being a sort of knockdown, you know, um, sort of uh, the ultimate move that would, crush your intellectual enemies. I'm just saying, just like anyone who boosts American, you know, interventionist policy in the world would have to answer for Iraq. I think looking over the history of the quote unquote liberal international order, Korea is a great example of, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the alternative challenge question of saying, okay, how do you, how would you propose, how would your system result in, the tremendous success for humanity of the existence of this society. 
but yes, and I mean, I I I feel that because I, I agree with that sentiment. I agree that uh, I I feel that part of the problem that we see is when is people who have a tendency to overemphasize the bad aspects of American hegemony will then um, what, when they have to come up with some alternative, they end up supporting very anti-American regimes that are so much worse. I mean, and, and by this, I mostly mean, um, Venezuela. yes, well, I was going to, yeah, I, I was, I was specifically thinking of, um, you know, some of the American celebrities who would then say nice things about Venezuela. Like didn't Sean Penn have a whole thing with Chavez back in the day? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's that kind of thing where um, people who focus on bad things America does then, you know, almost invariably end up um, with some level of, of support for regimes that are so much worse elsewhere because they take an anti-American stance and they view that as sort of like this heroic anti-imperialist thing. Right. And that's that's just awful. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's another part of the it's another part of the uh, very frustrating situation with the freshman congresswoman from Minnesota who seems to keep putting her foot in her mouth about some of these issues. You know, Ilan Omar has um, often been in the news now about comments that she's made about Israel and uh, various lobbying groups and the power of certain lobbies to dominate American foreign policy. And, you know, she seems to have very ostentatiously refused to criticize Maduro, which is just mind-boggling. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, just as we were starting the show and I opened up my computer and I started to see some of the news, once again, Ilan Omar says something awful was um, was one of the, the headlines in there. Yeah. Um, but, but it's also, I guess, you know, there's a, there's a way in which countries uh, are always going to collectively be very embarrassing <laughs> because... We've got this huge country with all these different interests, and they manifest themselves in different weird little phrases and catchwords and ideas being uh, resonant for the constituents of whichever community. And so they're going to, you know, those spokespeople, you know, congressmen in this case, is going to have their 15 minutes and they're going to get on their little hobby horse and they're going to use some phrase that's going to sound totally weird and crazy to everyone other than their constituents that they're trying to speak to. Just so happens that in this case with, you know, with Elon Omar, that craziness seems to coincide with very well-established anti-Semitic tropes which just makes it even worse. But hopefully, um, you know, she'll... You know, she, this is also the, the, the extent to which 
democracy is not just a it's not just a form of government it's a mechanism for society to see itself and attach value to the practices that it wants and to uh, to move beyond the practices that, that we don't want um, because that very process of the constituents sent her, you know, sending her with this message and then her speaking to them, being listened to, getting reported on, that, that mechanism has brought this, these ideas out into the open. And as a result, we have the opportunity of having a conversation about uh, you know, the American-Israel relationship, uh, the Jewish lobby, quote-unquote, um, the need for special consideration of the incredibly toxic legacy of anti-Semitism that makes it important to react very strongly to these types of comments. And hopefully it can be a learning this is sort of a cliche phrase, but the learning opportunity, you know, the, the democracy can be a, a tool for society to improve itself rather than, you know, just another form of government that's worse, you know, that's, that's, that's the worst except for all the other alternatives. It'd be great if you could edit out everything else I said too, because I think I was. Probably do that in most weeks. Um, yeah. <laughs> it'd be better for everybody. Yes. What? Um, so something that I found interesting with the Ilan Omar controversies and the anti-Semitic tropes is that um, suddenly the right wing is very concerned about dog whistles. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's right. been a thing for forever, as long as I've followed politics, that the right wing gets very upset when you accuse them of racist dog whistles. Um, and... You know, how dare you use this story about a strapping young buck getting welfare and stakes and named T-Bone and a welfare queen driving a Cadillac? How dare you imply there was something racial to my comments? Um, you know, they for, for 20 years, uh, I mean, they said the 20 years I've been paying attention, that comment goes back even further. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's and it, it's been, hey, we're not racist because, you know, dog whistles aren't a thing just because you think it could be interpreted that way, et cetera, et cetera. And now with Ilan Omar, they find somebody who has been engaging in tropes very similar to the ones they did, just for a different group, and uh, and all this all of a sudden they care. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, and I think similar, perhaps to yeah. You know, there, can, there are clearly dog whistles that go back right into the core of the Republican Party uh, in, in recent history. But, you know, just as you mentioned, the, the attack on the welfare state uh, was clearly racialized. I would say clearly racialized. And um, so it's important to acknowledge that. And it's one of the things that, that makes me... You know, as I have talked about this before, someone who, uh, in certain ways, kind of wants to have a conservative party to vote for. Like, I want a conservative party that is plausibly competing for my vote. You know? Right. 
and this one is not that. This is not that, and part and one of the reasons that I find it very difficult to imagine ever really wanting to vote for almost any Republican is that racialized attack, you know, that history uh, that, the, that the contemporary Republican Party has had for a very long time, long before Trump, as uh, we talked about. Uh, but you know, that doesn't mean that fraud doesn't happen, you know, that it, that it never happened, that it's not something that we should ever talk about, right? Like, the two don't imply the same thing. And similarly, um, you know, the way that Ilhan Omar talked about uh, Jews and Israel and politics and American foreign policy really does seem redolent of that conspiratorial dog whistling manner of communicating. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, as a society, talk about, you know, the American-Israel relationship and have intelligent, accurate, non-hateful discussions of what's going on. And, um, yeah, it's not really a, um, I don't know, it's just, it just is another, the only thing I'm trying to express here is the, um, in addition to the shock and outrage and dismay of seeing a U.S. representative uh, trade in such really gross um, sort of characterizations of uh, Jews in the world and, and Americans, uh, it's also just sad to see an opportunity to contribute to that very complicated discussion, instead detract from it and bring us down into um, a much more dark and fearful place, if that makes any sense. I think that it does. Yeah. Uh, what? I mean, I, think, you know, I go back to what I was saying previously and repeat that um, you know, there's, a, there's potential to bring some good out of the situation by responding to her comments and answering the questions that she seems to be trying to raise in a good faith way. Like, give as much charity as possible and then respond in that way while also simultaneously pointing out and criticizing the uh, anti-Semitic undertones. Yes. Right, like that's that's that'd be the approach, the two-pronged approach. It would be. Um, that's the problem that we sort of have with you know, call-out culture, where calling people out for something is important in the sense that they need to learn what they're saying is wrong. But the problem comes when people feel attacked by it. That distinction between saying what you just said was racist versus you are a racist. Right. And a point I think I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but you know, one of my sort of running theories is that. Um, when you accuse it's, it's racists who get very upset about being called racist or having a race, <laughs> being told that what they've said was racist. People who are not racist have more of a tendency to sort of hear that and think, Oh, well, what did I say that was wrong? You know, what, what that's the whole idea of being woke is that you've sort of awoken to the fact that these are 
you know, th there are these things that hide in our psyches that we're not consciously aware of because that's where stereotypes reside. And um, uh, so if, if you say something that is unintentionally racist, it's important that you know that that was racist mm -hmm. and uh, that you don't say that again. But if but people who feel that they are being attacked are saying you are racist because you said that, well, then they suddenly feel a need to defend the comment because they want to defend themselves from the accusation of racism. Right. Uh, I remember in my freshman year of college, I will not say what the remark was, but I made a remark. And then, um, you know, my, uh, my roommate, Jared, um, was like, that's kind of racist. And I, I hadn't even realized that it had that implication. But, um, you know, I think in part because he phrased it so well that I didn't get defensive. Um, I paused and was like, wow, that really wasn't an appropriate thing to say. Um, and you have to you have to have those learning moments and you never learn if you get defensive um, about how you're being accused of, of saying something like that. So well, this um, whole time we've had this friendship, I had no idea that I'm friends with a racist. Racist. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but it was something that, you know, it, it's, it's those sign up sort of things that, um, as I said, hide in your mind because they, they come out through various forms. And you have to have some moment that makes you aware of that fact. And right. well, um, people don't know. like to use learning opportunities. They like to be defensive and insist that they never did anything wrong. Right. And, and to the extent that, as I was sort of stumbling at expressing this idea a little while ago, you know, democracy as a practice of erring and debating ideas provides one mechanism for bringing out those ideas and providing the opportunity for the society collectively to debate and correct, you know, debate itself and correct itself to some extent. And now social media has provided one particular new form of a, of a technology or a tool um, to implement that mechanism. And it really, I think, does still bear, you know, just have an incredible opportunity to um, to give us that, or you know, it, it, it provides us collectively with the opportunity to improve ourselves. And I think it still provides the opportunity for us to improve ourselves, even as people instead use it to display how virtuous they are. You know, the, the, the downsides of fallout or of, of uh, call-out culture, the fallout of call-out culture, perhaps you could say, uh, where people don't act in the way that you're just describing and jump down each other's throats in order to imply that they are more vir virtuous, you know, this, this sort of holier-than-thou um, way that call-out culture can operate. I think that even that still has the potential to uh, to teach us to be better by you know by airing these all these ideas you know by sort of flagging things for people to think about and maybe I'm wrong there I mean maybe I'm not maybe I'm being too optimistic on that but, but there's definitely you know even if the bad is is actually bad <laughs> like, there is definitely a good function. Um, to all this that I think is and 
Yeah. And part of what happened with some of the Ilan Omar comments, or at least uh, how it appeared to me, or how some of the coverage seemed to reflect it, was that she engaged in anti-Semitic tropes that are sort of culturally pervasive. Uh, pervasive? That's not a word, is it? Uh, pervasive. Culturally adjacent. Culture, yeah, I, I would just make a kneel. Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, the idea was that she had made a lot of these comments without necessarily even consciously thinking of them as anti-Semitic, but they feed into anti-Semitic tropes. And, you know, I definitely believe there are plenty of times that Republicans have said things that we've jumped on as using racist tropes that they didn't realize were racist. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't think that and I and I, I do think that that might be part of the, the disconnect that we have where, um, you know, where they get defensive because they didn't think they were saying anything racist. And well, the, the issue with a, them not being woke is that they don't necessarily realize that. Right. There, and there is a way in which in our contemporary culture, we just don't know how to talk about many categories of difference because for, I mean, just a personal example, I think I, I might have even talked about this before, but I was, uh, I was curious to, you know, I went, I went through the boxes as, as Cohen would, uh, would put it. I, I went through my storage, uh, you know, my storage unit and went through all the boxes to find the details. But, you know, when I was working on the Hill, I remember being struck back in uh, the 110th Congress that the, uh, you know, the highest ranking members of the Foreign Affairs Committee were very disproportionately Jewish. Hmm. And that is just a fact, right? But even noticing it, made me feel uncomfortable because it struck me as odd to remark on that precisely because, even to myself, precisely because of these anti-Semitic tropes. And so, you know, for, the, the, the simple fact remains that here I was, seen with my eyes, you know, there were 16 um, members on the, in the majority and majority of the, the were the heads of the subcommittees, and of the 16, uh, six of them were Jewish, which is highly disproportionate to you know, the number of American Jews. And so what, what might explain that? Well, you know, if you're an anti-Semite, you're a Nazi, or uh, maybe even sadly, if you're a congresswoman from Minnesota, you would look at this and see, you know, evidence of the international Jewish conspiracy, some kind of international Jewish, you know, conspiracy of hypnotizing the world or whatever her phrase was. But, you know, when I, when I thought about it, it actually made, it made perfect sense for totally non-conspiratorial reasons because, you know, where do a lot of American Jews live? They live in cities. They're highly educated. They would probably be representing districts where the constituents were highly educated, living in cities, interested in the world. That means that of all the congressmen who might be interested in taking a seat on the Foreign Affairs Committee, as opposed to appropriations or ways and means or other committees that would provide better opportunities for the congressmen to serve pork back to their districts, as it were, 
um, you know, who would see a benefit that they could go back to their constituents and say, I did this and that on the Foreign Affairs Committee? Well, people who represent districts where they're you know, highly educated people who care about the world and, um, you know, and, uh, and would reward their congressmen for shaping American engagement with the world. And it's, you know, it's totally non-conspiratorial and it makes sense and it's worth pointing out. I think it's worth pointing out in part because that's maybe something that you could go to these constituents who are maybe themselves peddling anti-Semitic thoughts and phrases and memes uh, back and forth to say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I see what you're seeing, but there's no reason to jump to this crazy conspiratorial anti-Semitic explanation for this fact. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's like, you're, you're only half insane. <laughs> you're not, you're not, a, you're not, you know, you're, you're way more than half maybe insane, depending on what you believe. But, um, it's like, there are, there are ways to explain what we see that don't resort to dog whistles and ancient lies and, um, you know, and, and, and real bigotry. Right. And, I mean, and as the, and as we said before, in order to, you, not everybody knows that that's what they're resorting to. And the point right. of calling them out is that they're aware that that's where it comes from. Because yeah. otherwise you might not be thinking about it. Although, again, as as we noted in a previous episode about, um, oh, I can't, what, what, I don't remember what we were talking about at the time. It was just a couple of weeks ago um, where we were talking about how the Republicans just have no standing to be the ones objecting yeah. to some of this stuff. They just don't. It's it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, with the Ilan Omar stuff, this is also true because um, there are some really damning clips out there of Trump saying engaging in all the tropes that Ilan Omar engaged in, and in even worse yeah. forms. Yeah, well, there was the, I mean, the the classic one was the like I don't want a black accountant, right? I don't want a, don't want a Jewish guy, you know. Well, he didn't even say Jewish; he said name. guys with yarmulkes. Yeah, right. Like oh, man, he managed man. to be even cruder than that. Right. So, again, this is one of those things where, as you said, it would be great to have an alternative political party to consider voting for to earn our vote. But this is a discussion where, effectively, in a sort of cultural sense, the Republicans are all backbenchers just, you know, shouting things while other people are trying to have a real debate. Right. And they don't really have a role in this debate until they get their own act cleaned up. And all the Republicans yeah. who put out their statements about how horrifying these Ilan Omar comments were, who somehow didn't notice Steve King for the last 10 years. Right. I mean, that's it's, – it's just absolutely in, insane to me. I will note, though, that, that um, one thing that, that sort of surprised me when she made her original comment about, oh, it's all about the Benjamins, I assumed she was just implying lobbying money. And she said APAC. I was like, okay, so she's implying that it's lobbying money from APAC. I didn't understand until I saw a story covering this. I had just assumed that um, a because the, the news the, the news story had a, a had a line that said APAC is not a PAC, and that's one of those things where your mind is sort of blown for a moment 
because it's not the Israeli-American Political Action Committee. It's the Israeli-American um, Political Affairs Committee um, or Political Action versus what The way that it are, um, you know, it's not a PAC in the sense that we're used to super PACs. Like, it's not that kind of PAC, even though it has PAC in the name. Yeah. And and so it really actually, I mean, I had I really had just assumed that they um, exercise so much influence through a lot of lobbying dollars, but it turns out they actually don't spend very much money at all. Um, which yeah, you know, which well, yeah, yeah. So you know it, that that was that was something that I learned from right. from that. I had just assumed, you know, I didn't I didn't put the same gloss on it that she did, but. Um, I had assumed that lobbying dollars from APAC were influential, um, and well, I guess, a, I guess it it's not as much to, the dollars. But yeah, it goes back to a question that we've also discussed on this, which is, you know, what does lobbying mean? Like, what are we right. talking about? And I, I think a lot of voters who, you know, some voters who care about this issue but don't care enough about it to actually become informed about it think that congressmen are getting. You know, the lobbyists are coming in and handing paper bags full of money to congressmen, right. and that's what corruption is. Uh, and I, I don't want to be dismissive of, you know, uh, you know of, of semi-informed voters here, but you know, the corruption is not necessarily involving that kind of direct activity. In a way, it's even worse than that. It's the lobbyists have all of the expertise that is necessary for government to function and effectively serve as contractors who are providing information that government actually needs to function. And so if a congressman wants to renew a post office, and this, is, this would be a really extreme example, but you know, you rename a post office to commemorate someone from your district. You know, where do you where do you get the details of that person's life? Okay, that's one example. If you're going to remake the pharmaceutical industry by changing some rule, where do you get the expert analysis of what the proposed change would actually do? Well, people in the industry actually have a fairly, fairly good claim to know what the effects of any proposed change would be. And so that lobbying uh, actually very naturally comes from them. But the problem is that if it's, you know, if, 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 the, if the people who are producing that information are not independent of the financial backing of the industry, then you can't ultimately rely on, on their expertise because it's not autonomous. Um, and that's an obvious point. So, so in a way, it's, it's even worse than the corruption implied by a paper bag full of money. Because it's so much more pervasive. Right. Although, that. I mean, and so, what, so like, what does this have to do with Israel or APAC? It's well, you know, APAC. You said they don't spend money. They don't spend money on political campaigns, but they do spend money on events, talks, lectures, position papers. I mean, they're providing information, which is the currency in, in a certain in a certain way. Information is is more the currency of Washington than than money is the currency. Yeah, I mean, in a way, um, how I, and I'm not even sure I would term what you said corruption. It's just a system that's not functioning properly. Right. Uh, well, that's what I meant is that it's even more 
depending on your perspective here, it's even more troubling than outright corruption would be because it's more pervasive. Right. Because than... corruption, you could, you know, at least in theory, you could elect representatives of better character. But if it's a, a, a sustained cultural problem, then, you know, what, I mean, here we exactly. are, we, we leftists who believe that there are institutional barriers and it's not just personal character that solves everything. Uh, but I mean, it, it, like the, an example one might give for some of this very complicated legislation you get is imagine you're at work and you're assigned to write a report and, um, you know, it's not something that you're even all that familiar with. And I know another person comes to you and says, hey, I already wrote your report. You know, it's 100 pages. I've already got it done. Everything's good. And I understand how to write this kind of report better than you do. And yeah, that's exactly my... Yeah, and, and, exactly and, and you know, are we as voters ex supposed to expect them to say, no, we're not even going to look at the work that you did? And, 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 you know, there's a lot of money that goes into that other person having already written the report. Which, which exactly. I mean, the issue with that being that you don't get... You don't get somebody who is affected by it, but doesn't have the resources to have written the report already. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the issue. I, mean, I was just trying to phrase it in a slightly clearer way for our audience. Oh, yeah, definitely clearer. Institutional capacity problem that um, there are a lot of reasons for, and if you focus on the executive branch, which, um, you know, a lot of our focus says when we talk about government, that's, you know, that is most of what we're talking about most of the time, but it's, it's very possibly more of a problem with the legislature because, um, there were particular steps taken to gut this institutional capacity for research and policy planning uh, that would have been autonomous within the legislative branch. Uh, but my understanding is, is basically uh, Newt Gingrich did this and you know, gutted. Uh, there was a congressional office of technology that would have potentially uh, saved us from such wonderful phrases as a series of tubes. You know, it would have provided briefings uh, that might have led to Congress people being more cognizant of uh, technological issues along those lines. So maybe it's for the best that he uh, that he axed it. So for, for the good of the means, you know. But there's that, and then the Congressional Research Service, which does exist and does do good work, but uh, would, you know could have been, you know, could be much uh, more robust. But in the absence of that kind of institutional support, you you know, you, you necessarily rely on industry people. And, you know, there are people who could, who could just say that it's, this is a good thing. This is as it should be, that there you should, the membrane between, uh, you know, industry and government should be as thin as possible because the business of America is business. And that's a, it's a theoretically consistent and sort of, uh, it's a position that, that has integrity. Um, but if that's what you believe, then okay, just admit that and acknowledge that there are 
if you know there might be some benefits to that system, but there are also definitely drawbacks. You know, if you want uh, some kind of independent um, sort of uh, oversight and research capacity within the government itself. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's well, one of the things that's been coming up. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting into tax time now. And uh, a big problem that um, is very similar to what you've, well, similar in the sense that it's, it's, there's been a resource squeeze. And when people hear that, oh, you know, members of Congress are having some amount of budgets cut, good, we hate Congress, et cetera, et cetera. This is a big problem with the IRS, where yeah. we've spent quite a while depriving the IRS of resources, you know, relatively speaking. Um, and, uh, and it's, which resulted in them not having the resources they need to really do their job. And it's who's ever going to win an election where they say, we're going to re increase resources for the IRS. Like that, that there's no constituency for that. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I definitely agree with your point. I understand what you're, what your point is there, but I think if the argument were, uh, first of all, it doesn't have to be the plank, right? <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't have to be right. like an explicit plank in the national campaign, but, um, you know, but depending on, I, I think a lot of Democrats were hoping that um, this tax season would result in political pr pressure precisely for such a uh, campaign pledge as people look at their refunds and, you know, either don't get responses, uh, and it, this was part of the politics behind the shutdown, was whether or not the IRS would be able to respond to uh, questions and sort of assist taxpayers in, uh, in, you know, walking through their their taxes or reductions in the refunds because of the different ways of calculating withholdings from last year. Um you know that could potentially that could potentially result in pressure for uh, you know a, a sort of good government good governance campaign pledge to say you know the IRS needs to yeah you know, we need people to fill these positions so that we can help you do your taxes or even to just say let's be like Japan and many other countries in the world where the IRS just does your taxes because they have all this information anyway. And so let's just, you know, peace of mind for the American taxpayer. No more uh, sitting on the kitchen, you know, sitting next to the kitchen table with your calculator and trying to figure all this crazy stuff out. Just pay someone, a, you know, a reasonable, pay a, you know, a, a patriotic civil servant a reasonable fee and peace of mind forever. You know, that could, that could potentially, maybe I'm too optimistic uh, here, but that it seems to me that guy could potentially be a part of a winning play, particularly in the post-Trump era. Right. And the more stories you see about how the IRS has been forced to cut back its audits of the very rich and under political, you know, some political changes have been doing more audits of not as rich people. And as the old line goes about why do you rob banks, the answer is because that's where the money is. Um, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to do that. I don't know. It's 
I, I wish I understood a bit more about the IRS audit process and what's going on over there. But, um, you know, if you were to Google IRS scandal or anything like that, you just hear about, oh, Obama's people and right wing nonprofits and so on. No, and this does strike me. There was a there's a really I think it was in Mother Jones. Is it either Mother Jones or um, the Center for Investigative Reporting? But there was a very comprehensive analysis of the cuts to the budget of the IRS over the last decade or so, and it was pretty damning. And it, it really, again, like. Some of these, you know, I approach these issues with a certain degree of vertigo because, in terms of my actual political philosophy, I think of myself as being sort of a version of like the like the, what what in the UK would lead you to be a liberal Democrat. You know what what people in the UK would call a liberal, which is to say, like a Tyler Cohen free market kind of person to some extent. Um, but trying to figure out where my political home is in this country, you read things like this article and you see a concerted effort to cut the resources of the IRS while simultaneously imposing requirements for testing the recipients of welfare, basically, that obligate the IRS to dedicate their scarce resources not to uh, auditing the taxes of millionaires who actually have the money, but instead to auditing people making minimum wage or less, you know, who are receiving uh, benefits of, of whatever kind. And the return, as it were, to the you know, to the, to the FISC is, is not existent because you know, these people don't have any money. Um, <clears throat> but it's a matter of starving the beast. I mean, it's, again, this goes back, this goes all the way back to, to Reagan. And this is part of the reason that I, I really hope that our generation just finally destroys this cult of Reagan that, you know, people that I would otherwise respect have, have talked about for so much of my life because, you know, this, this is what starving the beast means. It means that you, that you, you don't give the IRS the resources they need to audit the taxes of people like Donald Trump who are hiding money from the American people and you let them get away with it while instead subjecting, you know, regular people who are just trying to live their lives and don't have any money to hide, even if they are hiding something. You know, they're, they're hiding pennies. And so you get these civil servants who, you know, drop the hammer on poor people uh, while incredible, you know, while these rich people who have very uh, complicated finances are able to get away with hiding them, in part because there's not, there remains no capacity to explore and analyze their extremely complex finances to see whether they are evading taxes, right? Like the, the, they have so much money that it's so difficult to audit them to begin with that they just don't get audited. And it comes from starving the beast. It comes from this, 
this extremist Republican anti-government strategy that combines this sort of incredible punitive punctiliousness for the poor with um, just total carte blanche to, to the rich. Yes, it's the, I don't know, that odd obsession that there are fraudsters out there who are going to just unfairly game the system and not do any work. And right. that motivates so much of it, just like when we talked last week about the Zadroga bill and how, how could a bill about helping the medical needs of 9-11 first responders possibly not just sail through Congress and the Republicans, oh, well, but, but, but somebody could commit fraud and they're happier right. having deserving people suffer than in having a few guilty people prosper. And I right. think that that's backwards. Yeah. And it's why, I mean, you know, I, I, I find myself thinking these things and it makes me really wonder whether, you know, a candidate of someone like Bernie Sanders actually could catch a, you know, a tremendous amount of support in this country precisely because he has been so, I mean, all the things that made me think that he would be ineffective because of his sort of inflexibility and dogmatic purity and the fact that he's, you know, hasn't passed very much legislation. Um, you know, all the, all the, all of his record that makes it seem clear that he would just be bad at working the system is itself a record that could be very popular for people who it's sort of you know, the same people. I mean, literally potentially the same people who wanted to send Trump as a wrecking ball down to DC to just knock down this corrupt quote unquote corrupt, you know, dysfunctional structure that they don't understand. Um, you know, reading articles about, the IRS, as I was describing and seeing in myself, this tension between like, I don't want to support this guy like rationally. Uh, he just doesn't believe in a lot of the stuff that I believe in. And he doesn't, you know, he, he sort of, um, you know, his track record is not good in actually working the levers of power to, to make a difference in improving people's lives. But precisely that lack of effectiveness could be read by many people as a signal of his, you know, quote unquote integrity and be electorally successful. That's yes. People read signals in interesting ways. People read signals in interesting ways. That's a very, very clever simplification of what I just said. <laughs> well, you know, the listeners, thank you. Yes, exactly. I'm just I'm just here today to take what you say and express it in human terms. Right. That was not an endorsement, by the way. It was a it was an observation of of uh, mild shock at my at my own brain. Mm. Well, yes. Uh, I think we're about hitting the the end here, and that actually is kind of a good stopping point because. Um, I want everybody, when this episode ends, to just pause and marvel at David's brain. Um, <laughs> whatever um, strange paths have brought it where it goes. Uh, 
But yeah, I, I think we had an interesting discussion this week about um, some of those things. We were concerned, dear listeners, that this would be a very difficult week to talk about because so much was going on, but not a lot of it really related to um, longstanding core principles, at least on the surface. Uh, we managed to find them. Uh, but it's hard not to just get wrapped up in something like the Michael Cohen testimony, which you will notice we really didn't talk about. There were a lot of interesting moments there, but I mean, what can we add to it that you didn't see on any of the late night shows making fun of it? So, well, and you know, yeah. if we want to if we want to bring this back to Thucydides, you also have to think of Thucydides sitting there after being exiled by the Athenians, watching, you know, hearing this report, you know, of of the war going on, and piecing together the history from a combination of things that he witnessed himself or heard, but then also just that he had to gather through the grapevine and just deciding himself, okay, this was the turning point. This is where it all changed, right? Because we, we read about the, the Peloponnesian War, and we have to remember that you know, Thucydides was just deciding what he thought were the most crucial issues based on his own biases and beliefs. Right. And that's all we're doing. <laughs> it, it that's is. all we can hope to do. Except our biases and beliefs are correct. Obviously. obviously. Yes. And we'll leave everyone with that final note. Have a good week, everybody.